0: Hello, and welcome to this week's European Conversations podcast, published by the European Movement in Scotland. I'm Kirsty Hughes, and I'm in conversation with Franz Shepers on the wide-ranging and vital topic of rewilding. Franz Shepers is one of the founders and the executive director of Rewilding Europe, which is based in the Netherlands, and more information on Rewilding Europe, apart from in this podcast itself, can be found at rewildingeurope.com. Franz, thanks very much for joining me today on our European Conversations podcast. I want to start with the the obvious but really quite a big question, which is, what is rewilding? Some people think it's trees or wolves, but it's, it's more than that, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And... Um... You know, it's subject to discussion as well, and it's it's interesting that we maybe don't have such a clear dis, uh, definition of it because we believe rewilding has a, a transformational uh, element that helps us to 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 define what rewilding actually means. Whether you're in Scotland or other European countries, and of course there are there are technical definitions, there's even scientific definitions, and and maybe a, a popular way of saying it is helping nature to heal itself. And this is something that resonates with people. Think about it. So you create the right conditions for nature to restore itself without us managing, controlling and defining how nature should develop. Um, so we turn it around. We let nature lead, but we create the right conditions for, it, for that to happen at scale.
0: And you're the executive director of Rewilding Europe. So as you say, this is what you're trying to help not to kind of control in, in rewilding, but so what are you doing as as rewilding Europe from from that overall perspective?
1: Yeah, we, you know our big vision is that there is a space for wilder nature in Europe. I'm not I'm, I'm, I'm deliberately not saying wilderness. Of course, there's also space for wilderness, but let's talk about wilder nature or wild nature. And we believe wild nature um, can be an important or should be an important part of a modern 21st century Europe. And you know, I think we all grew up in a very cultural landscape, uh, where we used to prune, cut, shoot, put barbed wires, um, manage, mow, uh, cut, whatever people do in nature. We are, we, you know, Europe has a very human dominated landscape overall. And we have lost this idea that nature can do things by itself as well. In fact, you could say we have lost trust in nature. And, um, I think that's the paradigm shift in thinking that we're looking for how can we allow nature to bounce back and how can we create a situation where we have more robust self sufficient self supporting nature that will then provide you know everything we depend on whether it's clean water fresh air well being places to recreate but also enjoy you know beautiful old forest and wildlife coming back and uh, so that's our bigger vision and um It's great to have a vision, but of course, we want to see how this works in practice. And that's why now 10 years ago, we started to work in 10 big landscapes across Europe to pioneer and demonstrate how this could work in these different geographies, different local social contexts, different landscapes and uh, cultures. And that's really exciting because we believe there's no blueprint for this. um, There's no silver bullet. And we, we are pioneering driven by local organizations how this could uh, could happen, and and that's really exciting. We are sort of rediscovering uh, how wild nature could express itself in a human dominated landscape that Europe is.
0: And you've so you've been in operation for ten years, which I guess in nature terms can be long and extremely short as as well. But but from what you've seen and done so far, could you say some more about some of the the benefits you've seen? You 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 said having more wilder nature in in europe can can give us lots of benefits but what Mm -hmm. sorts of ways is is that helping the planet Mm -hmm. our continent and so
1: on i think rewilding is very much about reconnecting people with nature i think uh, conservation in general the word already says it has been quite conservative for a long time a little innovation and and uh, you know people got this picture that nature is something between fences maybe and 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 far away uh, but we really want to correct connect reconnect modern society with nature again and the, and and there's many reasons for it and i think everyone is aware of the the nature crisis and the climate crisis that we're in and more and more people realize th- these are two sides of the same coin so uh, nature can provide long term and and really uh, important solutions for the impact of climate change and the loss of biodiversity that we are experiencing and so, if you then look at you know your question about what are the potential benefits, I think it's uh, it can be you know quite broad. It is safety uh, against floods, droughts. Nature can be a solution for that. It can be um, human well-being, health. Um, I'm sure you are aware, or a lot of people are aware of the importance of of having nature around you for your personal well-being. Walking in the forest or in a natural area, really does something with your mind and your health in a positive way. Uh, but then there is all these more material benefits as well. We see in the areas where we work across Europe where there has been land abandonment, where where rural depopulation has driven, you know, areas to become empty because young people want to live in a city and and, and study at university and start a life there. Uh, less and less people living, uh, you know, on, on, on the countryside. Rewilding can bring new jobs and income, not not to to sort of go back to the landscapes of the past, but uh, working towards landscapes of the future, which are nature positive, climate resilient, and and bring those new social benefits. So think about jobs and income that are are created through nature-based tourism, uh, sort of new local identity, and maybe uh, local products that people used to produce, but now... Are being reinvigorated in this new context of a wilder landscape, but there you can also connect with, uh, like you know, to how to manage forests, how to get forests back again. Um, So there's there's lots of benefits Uh, we see both uh, sort of economic, but also uh, wider benefits, non-material benefits, if you like. Uh, I think we are depending on nature, isn't it? And and in a in a continent where nature is so degraded, uh, people don't even realize how degraded it is. You know, we need to make sure that, and this is, of course, you know, our agenda, but also the agenda of the European Commission with the Green Deal, with the biodiversity strategy, the new one, but also with, uh, of course, the UN decade of ecosystem restoration and the new EU restoration law that is coming to restore nature at scale, because we depend on our life systems, whether it's air, water, uh, recreation, you name it.
0: So the situation... Across Europe, and we are talking, just to emphasise here, we are talking about Europe, aren't we, and not just the yeah. European Union. And, of course, in Absolutely. fact, one of your local partners is, is Scotland, uh, is in Scotland uh, with the, the project and the landscape, the Afrik Highlands. Yes. How ambitious, you, you know, you said we, we've got these 10 partners, 10 landscapes, but we know in Europe as as well as around the world, as you said, nature is degraded, there's huge biodiversity loss how fast and how ambitious do you think you could build on what you're already doing to to really make a difference
1: yeah that's a very good question and it links to the the two roles we see for ourselves so one role is demonstration so we work in these landscapes they're all uh, at least a 100,000 hectares but actually most of them are much bigger like africa islands i think it's it's 180,000 or close to 200,000 hectares of land where we're trying to uh, you know, to bring this new narrative about rewilding and put it in practice. And those 10 big areas, um, and we're working towards 15 because we would like to also start including marine coastal uh, examples, Um, we hope we'll demonstrate and maybe, you know, also provide the evidence that this can work. And and these should be inspirational examples, you know, to scale up, which is our second role. So we put a lot of effort in demonstration of rewilding and we can talk more about what this actually means in terms of interventions on the ground. But then we also need to scale up. And there is a lot of ideas and we're going to put a lot of effort in making sure that we scale up the idea of rewilding, which means that we we would like to see others adopt the idea of rewilding, not because they like us, but because of their own long-term self-interest, whether it's governments, whether it's local authorities, whether it's companies, whether it's you know landowners, you name it. And um, there's a number of mechanisms that you can use to scale up rewilding. And we've developed quite a number of models and ideas about how to do this, ranging from uh, business and uh, new business models around forestry, hunting, uh, land management, and so on, up to, uh, you know, communicating ab- about our work and-, and inspiring others to say, wow, this is incredible idea. And, um, and we would like to do this ourselves as well. And, um so that's uh, you know that's our agenda, and um yeah, so we, we're not looking at only at positive impact in those ten landscapes of fifteen, but also beyond
0: and of course, one of the the things you come across if if you look into rewilding even even a, a little is this sort of mantra, if I can put it that way, that it's very important to work with local communities. And that, of course, there are people in, in local communities who who are concerned or worried about rewilding. Maybe they don't understand it. Maybe they don't like the idea mm. of predators coming back, or perhaps even they don't like too much tree cover, or especially they may be farmers or people who aren't farmers, but worry about food security. So how, I mean, there's, there's several questions, I think, in what I've just said, yeah. but, you know, how do you, how do you engage with local communities and perhaps once you talked about that you could say something about the food security issue and, and rewilding interacting mm-hmm. with effective food production.
1: Yeah okay well first on the local communities I mean it's a no-brainer of course we, we, you know you work with local stakeholders so in all our landscapes that we work have been nominated by local organizations so it has not been rewilding Europe deciding ah this is a great place pioneer rewilding. No, we we asked for nominations from all across Europe. We got 30 nominations of landscapes that wanted to be part of this idea because it resonated with them. They saw the challenges and the opportunities. And of course, this is really important because then you start in a demand-driven way. Then next, we have set up those local teams and local entities that are embedded in local society. They live in these places. They work in these places. They know their neighbors. They know the local context. And they know who are the key stakeholders. And so it is interesting that a lot of people question the idea that rewilding would not work with communities. It's just, it's a no brainer and it's happening everywhere. And I understand that it might feel like it, but if you really look at what's happening on the ground in all these areas and initiatives, and of course there's always examples that that might not be, you know, uh, good ones, but uh, this, is, this is part of that. You cannot do this without local support and engagement. So these local partnerships are, are key and, um, um and you know we have to be realistic as well not everyone is enthusiastic from the start I mean no idea has that is it so what we typically do is we start with what we call early adopters people that like the idea and want to become partner whether it's landowners or municipalities or individuals or businesses or companies you know people that would like to explore and and develop these ideas with us together and that's where we start and there is a lot of people of course that are not sure they wait and see they may be a bit um, hesitant or even skeptic or you know and and we hope of course to bring them on board and and show that this is an interesting uh, opportunity and then there's people that just don't like it there's always people that don't like anything any change in the first place or this particular change so we have to deal with that as well but i think um and this is what we call the 2060-20 rule. So 20% are the early adopters, 60% are the we call them wait and see, and the other 20% is the people that just reject and don't like it. And you know, with full respect. And and so what we're trying to do is, you know, to engage with the 60% as much as we can and and, and work with them and bring them on board so that you know a deer really takes off. And we see that happening also now in in, in in our landscapes. But of course, this takes time. This is not a three or five year project This we talk about transition of landscape so you know we we, we committed for to work for for 20 years in these places and, and build those relationships and work with people so and um, and people that are not convinced you know maybe at some point they, they become convinced and others might never be convinced which is fine you know we have a free open society and people are free to to have their views of mm-hmm. course um, so, yeah, this this is, a, and, and I can give you examples of landscapes where, you know, different ways and and forms and shapes that we're doing this. Um, when it comes to food security, it's, of course, a bigger question. And um, it's interesting. If you look at land use scenarios in Europe, and there's quite some calculations have been done, but a lot of people don't realize that 70% of our arable land in Europe is used for fodder, to produce fodder for, for livestock, you know. We eat so much meat, and we exp- export so much meat in Europe, um, that seventy percent of our land is actually not used for food production. is is to feed, is to feed livestock, and apart from the soy and everything that comes from the from from other parts of the world, particularly South America, which is leading to deforestation there, we 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 just eat, eat too much meat. And uh, and I think if you talk about climate, if you talk about biodiversity, you talk about land use scenarios. Eating less meat creates lots of space because we don't need that land. We can use it for food production. So it's a bit—that's a very,
0: very direct example of the link between rewilding biodiversity and the climate change goals. Absolutely,
1: very clear example because it defines how we use our land. And so it's a bit strange to say, in particular, if you talk about marginal uh, areas in terms of agricultural productivity, like big parts of the Scottish Highlands, for instance. You know, you can't grow potatoes there. You can't. It's very, very tough environment for 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 agriculture and rewilding is happening a lot in uh, in, in those sort of marginal from an agriculture point of view, marginal production uh, soils. And and so, yeah, so so although people are now using the the, the 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 crisis that we see to say, no, we can't do rewilding because we need to produce food. That's just a, a wrong uh, presentation of, of the facts. and. Um, um, yeah so so we, we believe that there is a lot of space there and it's it's a matter of making the right choices and of course of changing the behavior of of consumers and producers as well so it's it you can see that it's all connected so maybe rewilding is even if you look at it from a very broad holistic perspective it's like a it's it's, it's very it's very uh, yeah it is very holistic and it connects with all these different topics
0: and i think as, I mean as you say you you said you've got this 2060 20, 20 way of looking at people but I certainly detect there's a there's a lot of enthusiasm for the idea as well because because I think faced with a number of crises and challenges in our society yeah. whether at home in Europe around the world people people are looking for something that means we're not in effect we're not destroying our our planet anymore can, yeah, I, can I maybe yeah. bring you down to some more specific examples obviously uh an iconic animal in scotland is the deer and in different rewilding landscapes and areas as as i understand it sometimes there's been a, a lot of control of deer but other times not and and there's going outside europe there's yellowstone park and the reintroduction yeah. of wolves and how how does that look to you from a european perspective yeah. are there different examples in your landscapes yeah.
1: Well, you have to realize that the way you know the deer numbers in in Scotland and there's other places in Europe, also in Spain, where where there are excessive high deer numbers, and you know the reason it was for, of course for for hunting purpose, as the business model for many of those estates and lands. But then on mainland Europe, the situation is uh, the opposite. We we have don't have enough deer, and and you know whether it's fallow deer, red deer, uh, roe deer, um, so we miss uh, natural densities of of. Uh, of of those species to to play their role in the landscapes and so in the UK you're missing the carnivores and on mainland Europe you know carnivores are doing very well bears wolves, slings they're all increasing with a bit of help but mostly on their own which is a very positive news I would say and I believe that if there would be a a land bridge between the UK and Europe you would already have been here (laughs) yeah it would be there if you look at you know I'm living here in the Netherlands um, we have now around 20 wolves in the Netherlands this year, 16 pups were born and we have four packs. And can you imagine? And so um, anyway, uh, so you miss the carnivores and uh, and have a lot of, of herbivores, in particular of one species, red deer, although road deer is also quite common in, in Scotland, I think. But um, here on Europe's mainland, we have a lot of uh, carnivores, but, you know, we need we need better prey densities as well for them. So it's a balanced story. And, um so we are actually reintroducing their species in some of our landscapes, yeah? and maybe this is for someone in Scotland. Like, how is this possible? And um, so and you're I not
0: discussing ha- that yet with your Scottish partners about wolves or lynx, or is is that no, a step for no, the no. future, maybe, but not now anyway.
1: Yeah, well, if you want to restore functional ecosystems, and that's what we're trying to do in those landscapes. Of course, you look at assemblages of species that can make that happen. You know, if you talk about uh, grazing as an, a natural grazing as an important ecological process in Scotland, then you need to reduce radian numbers. That's very clear. Uh, you want to regenerate forest. But at some point, if for it is, forest is being regenerated, you also need to bring in grazing animals because, you know, this focus or some people say even obsession about the Caledonian forest. It's great, but a natural forest does have a herbivore species, whether you know, from caterpillars to bison, I always say, and everything in between, because those are the the herbivores are the ones that to a large extent are shaping those landscapes in all their variety and dynamics. And just have a you know a big forest without natural grazing in it is actually also an unnatural situation. So over time, when there's more forest in, in the UK and and in Scotland, hopefully, You know, it also means that you have to bring a broader assemblage of of natural grazing animals, like large herbivores and others. And And beaver, of course, is another herbivore.
0: A lot of people in Scotland listening to this will will be, or looking at your website, you know, will be very pleased to see that there's a Scottish partner to your European rewilding network, because, of course, after Brexit, the UK and Scotland left many EU networks and, and projects. So... In your case, that's because you're not you're not a EU no.
1: outfit
0: per se, are you? You're a European outfit.
1: We are European and and Brexit EU. We we don't we are not we are apolitical. We look about landscapes. We look at we look at landscapes. We look at opportunities, and we believe that Scotland can be a prime example. Already is, I would say, with uh, all the initiatives that we see in Scotland, of how you can rewild large landscapes to, for the benefit of both nature and people, and and so. You know, in this nomination process where Africa Highlands was nominated to us, we looked at this and we came and we met lots of people and at some point we then accepted this nomination and started to work with the the partners to prepare this big initiative. And um, so we, yeah, (laughs) Brexit and and the EU, it's not relevant for us. We also work in Ukraine. We work in many other non-EU countries in Europe. And so... Yeah, that's and, that, uh, and
0: that's certainly what we need for, for rewilding for nature, for climate, obviously enough. But there's another partly political question I wanted to ask, which is about land ownership, because in mm-hmm. Scotland, land ownership is very concentrated. About half of Scotland's land is owned by around 500 people. Do Do you address that at all, or you just work with whatever ownership structures your partners face?
1: Yeah, land ownership structure is very different. In you know some areas where we work, it's 100% government. In other areas, it's very, very largely sort of private landowners. Other areas, it's municipalities or very you know like in Portugal, a lot of very small landowners. So uh, it really differs from from region to region. And yeah, we work we work with what what is what is possible. We we are not meant to change land tenure or systems. That's not our role. We we work with. We are very pragmatic, and we work with uh, with the landowners to, um, that we that we have in our areas, in our landscapes, to, uh, to to try and engage them and work with rewilding. And sometimes it means purchase of land, but it's very small. Uh, you know, we only do it in Portugal a little bit. Uh, but for the rest, it's mostly about the management agreements, uh, stewardship agreements, uh, concessions, whether it's concessions on grazing, hunting, or management. So. Um, we believe that with with this type of land rights that you can work with, you you we can have much more scale rather than buying land, which is of course also happening in, in in some places in Europe like Scotland, but also in Romania. And these are you know interesting models to look at. And and there's no one size fits all. I would say, situation for Scotland is unique. I know of course about land restitution policies and things like that. There's interesting initiatives of. scottish people becoming shareholder of of rewilding initiatives by being partly owning land i think um, uh, uh, highlands rewilding is a nice example that has been launched and and appreciated for that but there's also private estates that are very interested in rewilding and you know we're using those opportunities to work with of course
0: and I think I think as you've made clear throughout, you're you're learning from a diverse set of models, and that's reflecting biodiversity, perhaps. I'm I'm sure we could we could talk about this for so much longer. I feel we've only scratched the surface, but it's been great. But Absolutely. I wanted to end this conversation with one last question. You know, time horizons with, with nature maybe have to be long, but in other ways it's so urgent we can't afford to take forever. What would you Hope to see in Europe by 2030. What, what do you think we can really get to if if we really work at it?
1: Yeah. Well, let me start with saying that 10, 11 years ago, the word rewilding wasn't used in Europe, and now it's all over the place. And it says something about the the power of the word and and everything that we try to associate with it, and how we are trying to 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 you know to create this movement, if you like. And I see this growing very fast in the next 10 years. And I hope that um, there's now already 15 rewilding organizations in Europe rewilding France, rewilding Spain, rewilding Britain, uh, rewilding Sweden, uh, you name it. And also a lot of local sort of landscape type of organizations. I see this growing. And uh, what I also see is a lot of early career young people that want to be engaged in this. And they, you know, people, young people that are scared about the future. That have been demonstrating and are still demonstrating because they're very concerned. And rewilding is a very practical way of becoming active. You can rewild your garden, you can rewild city parks, you can rewild big landscapes, you can rewild oceans. And so, you know, working with nature as our ally, I think is uh, and and putting, putting people in a call it I call it the restoration mode. You know, how can we leave things in a better shape than than than, than before? I think that uh, if that becomes like a principle of life with a growing uh, number of people, organizations, and and you name it, and, and companies who are very much eager, a lot of companies are very eager on, on this nature-positive idea. I think I see a lot of uh, positivity, actually. And at the end of the day, it's about ourselves. You know, rewilding is 90% about people, 10% about nature. And some people say... You know, we can talk about these crises, but ultimately, people are are, are losing out, eh? not nature. And 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 this is something to remind. We do this also because very much because of the people and and the people in Europe.
0: Franz Sheppers, thank you very much indeed. There we must leave this week's European Conversations podcast. I'm Kirsty Hughes, and I was in conversation with Franz Sheppers.